Uh, we have been working our way through this book, putting uh, emphasis upon uh, the way that we think or our mindset as a believer. And uh, as we came to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, we looked at Paul's own mindset. We feel that uh, he begins to describe his own approach to the Lord Jesus and his disposition regarding the Lord. Uh, well, uh, in Philippians 4, verses 2 through 7, the emphasis remains upon the Lord. If you look, for instance, with me in your Bibles at Philippians 4 and uh, verse 2, at the end of that passage, at the end of that verse, Paul says to agree in the Lord. Uh, then again, you're looking uh, in your Bibles in Philippians chapter 4, and uh, look with me at verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, a little bit later on in the text, in, uh, in verse 5, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Three times in this passage, Paul will draw our emphasis to the Lord. He's keeping um, um, our focus on a Christ-centered mindset. And I believe that he's, he's wrapping up his discussion of what a Christ-centered mindset mindset looks at like by uh, no longer talking about himself and his own approach to the Christian life, but now to give a series of staccato commands, command after command after command after command. And it may seem that they're loosely jointed together, or they're, they're perhaps uh, just, you know, in bullet uh, fashion, uh, but uh, I believe that there is a strong emphasis that Paul is making here. And I, I Envision Paul here at the end of this section something like a coach in a, uh, of a team. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to play an organized sport before or coach. I'm probably beyond the years of ever playing in anything that ever matters again, uh, but I have had the opportunities recently to coach. Um, and uh, when I've had the opportunity to coach, right before the game begins... Um, right before the game starts, a coach will normally give so, his starters some final admonitions. As I started to think about some of those admonitions I would give to the team when I was coaching basketball, for instance, they were short, brief uh, uh, commands. They weren't suggestions. It's not like, you know, when you go out there, you might want to try this. And as a coach, I said things like, play big. Yeah, but I'm 5'2". I don't care. Play big as a player. Uh, make him go left. Start the game strong. Play defense. These are short commands that are summarizing the things I've taught them already and the mentality that I want them to have when they go out into the game. As Paul wraps up this epistle, he's already looked at all the different ways or explained the ways that their mindset should be centered on Christ and here he gives some final brief commands that should make that a little bit more clear to them. Paul's commands come in two parts in verses 2 through 7. The command in verse 3 where he says, help these women, help these women, in the middle of verse 3, actually um, controls all of verses 2 and 3. And then his commands in verses 4 through 7 are related to each other as well. And I find them coming in two categories. Paul's exhortations or commands come 
in uh, first concerning a dispute in the church, and secondly, concerning our disposition in the Lord. And so I want to look with you first at verses 2 and 3, uh, Paul's exhortation concerning a dispute. Look in your Bibles at verse 2. It says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The first exhortation has to do with the dispute in the church of Philippi. Evidently, Paul, although he's in Rome in his own house in prison, he has become aware of a dispute that is occurring between two prominent women in the church. They're not getting along well, and so Paul, in verses 2 and 3, in my opinion, he, he uh, settles or attempts to settle this problem by helping them in three ways. And it would be very good for us to note these for when we have to also help people who are having disputes, perhaps even within our own assembly. The first thing I see Paul doing in verse 2 is he confronts those in the wrong. See a problem between two brothers or sisters in the assembly? You first should start by confronting the individuals who are in the wrong. One of the things I noticed in verse 2, if you look at that in your Bible, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. Paul repeats the verb twice. He doesn't have to do this. Paul could have said, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, but Paul is, is uh, definitely going out of his way to be even-handed here in his challenge. He's, he's got an urgent request for Yodia, and he's got another one for Syntyche, or the same one for them, but he wants them to know they both are being addressed here. More specifically, he encourages them to agree in the Lord. You see that? You must agree in the Lord. And uh, this word agree is a word that we've seen all throughout Philippians. It's, it's in an infinitive form. It is the word that we've been translated mindset or thinking. In other words, this could be translated this way, I, be so, I beseech Yodi and I beseech Syntyche that you would have the same mind. You would have the same mindset. Unfortunately, however, we don't really know much about who Yodia and Syntyche are. It's Syntyche, not uh, Stinky, or yeah, I've heard all kinds of uh, different bad pronouncements of this. Yodia and Syntyche, we don't know who they are. It's apparent to me, though, in verse 3, that they do have a significant role in the church as women. This might be due to the fact that the church was predominantly started by, by fe- with females. If you go back to Acts 16 sometime and you look there, you see that many of the early converts in the church of Philippi were women. There was no Jewish synagogue. There weren't enough males, Jewish males, worshiping in Philippi. You need at least 10 of them. Evidently, there weren't enough of them in Philippi. So the, Jew- the Jewish people were worshiping not in a synagogue. There wasn't one formed there. They were worshiping down next to a river. There are some Jewish women and some uh, God-fearing women who are gathering there, and that's where Paul began the church. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people like Lydia, Lydia, the seller of purple, became converted. So even though we don't know much about either Yodia or Syntyche, we know that they are women, we can still notice, though, that Paul goes right to the source of the contention. 
As we deal with tension in the body of Jesus Christ, we must go right to the source. This is biblical. This is the way to do it. I know you've been taught this over the years, time and time again. You can't go to other people about the problem before you go to the person. You notice two believers in the church not getting along. You've got a biblical responsibility as a New Testament follower of Jesus Christ to help them. Go right to them and help them. And so the first thing Paul does is he confronts those in the wrong. But then in verse 3, the first part of the verse, he also engages others to help. Not only does he personally confront, he engages others. Now, this is my preferred method of dealing with it. I just would rather get everyone else involved. And, but you got to do verse 2 first. You got to confront them yourself. But then he's engaging other people as well, or another person here. Verse 3 says, Yes, and I ask you also, comma, true companion, help these women. Here Paul requests a true companion to help. Now, the word companion is actually a very difficult and mysterious word in the original text. Uh, ESV has translated it companion. It's translated by some other English Bibles as comrade or yoke fellow or something like this. But with this word, Paul might have one of three different things in mind. He might be telling the, uh, or might be describing the Philippian congregation as a whole. Okay? And some of the commentators actually think that this is the right idea. So he might be saying, and you, my true companion, all of you. Now he's looking at the whole entire house church of Philippi. All of you, I entreat you to help in this matter. So it might be a way of him describing the whole church in general. Or the word companion might be actually a specific name or the word behind companion. The Greek term could be transliterated Cyzygus. Uh, okay, And so some people su- suggest that Cyzygus is not a, the word for companion. It's a proper name, a Greek name, Cyzygus. Okay. The problem with that view is we nowhere else have any mention of that name. Not only does it sound strange to us, Cyzygus, I mean, who would name their kid that? Um, if your name's Cyzygus, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. It was not intentional, okay? But it's just a name that we wouldn't expect. In Greek, it's not a name that was ever used either. We don't have one piece of manuscript evidence anywhere where anyone has that name, okay? So uh, that's not my preferred explanation. But third, this might be a way for Paul to call out a certain but an anonymous person in the congregation of the church of Philippi. Perhaps their pastor, Paul's true companion, or uh, perhaps one of his uh, apostolic co-laborers who happened to be in Philippi. Someone like Luke, for instance, who was with him when he planned the church. He might still be here. We, We just don't know. Or he might have someone in mind like Lydia or the Philippian jailer. And he just calls them true companion. Regardless, Paul calls for another godly person or the entire assembly at Philippi to bring reconciliation between these two women who can't get together, Yodia and Syntyche. The actual command is found in the word help. That's the imperative. 
That's the command. And we, we should not lose sight of that word. That little word help is very important because that's the main verb of verses two and three. Okay. The challenge is this companion must help these two women gain reconciliation. I think it's um, important for us to remember our obligation as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. We have an obligation, all of us. If we see someone fall into sin in this assembly or someone who's causing division in the body of Jesus Christ, we must help them. You can write down a parallel passage. I don't have time to read this morning. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. If you see someone overtaken in a fault, you must help them. You must restore them in the Spirit of Christ Jesus. But that's not the final part of his strategy. It's threefold, right? He confronts those who are in, uh, who are in dispute. He engages a true or faithful companion to help him. But then finally, he reminds Yodia and Syntyche of their previous faithfulness and their place in God's family. This is the last part of verse 3. And instead of it just being tacked on here, this is actually another very significant part of the text. So look down in your Bible at verse 3. In the middle of the verse, Paul says he's describing Yodia and Syntyche and others like them when he says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I think some of the things we need to remember here in this part of the passage is that the book of Philippians was written and intended to be read out loud to the entire church. And as it's read out loud, two women will hear their name read at this point. Can you imagine that? I mean, you're uncomfortable if I ever call on your name from the pulpit, right? Uh, but but you're, you're reading a letter, and it's an inspired letter, and you hear your names. That's confrontation, right? Not only will they hear their names, though, they will hear Paul's tribute to their past faithfulness. These two women who've labored side by side like soldiers with me as we have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things I observe in the text here is that when Paul is dealing with confrontation in the church of Philippi, he reminds these two women, the offenders, of their faithful past. In a moment of application, again, I would encourage you that when you confront someone over sin in their lives, this would be a very good practice for you to follow. That is, as long as there has been some level of faithfulness in their past. Say things like, you know, I remember... Uh, your work in this particular ministry and how God used that and the significance of that. I remember when you were there, when someone came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you uh, are basically then uh, giving them a reputation to live up to. I remember observing one of my best friends in ministry raise his own child. He's raising his child, uh, he came into the teen years. You know, what, what happens to boys when they turn junior hires? I, I think we're, we're still figuring it all out, right? And so his, his kid went through this, like, rebellious streak, and, you know, it just seemed to be really waffling and struggling. And I observed my friend, another minister of the gospel, instead of 
becoming critical and harping and pounding on his kid. As he interacted with his, chid, his child, often he would pull his kid into a conversation and say something for which he was really proud of, the, of his child in front of another person. And this wasn't just like a one-time thing. I saw him do it over and over again. What was he doing? He was giving his child a good reputation to live up to. He was encouraging his child with past faithfulness that God had worked in his life. And I thought, that's the sort of parent I want to be. That's the sort of parent I want to be. When Paul uh, does this, he also adds another important phrase at the end of verse 3 that speaks of their future. Not only their past, but their future. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement. We don't really know who Clement is either, unfortunately. He's in Philippi, perhaps. And the rest of my fellow workers, other laborers of the gospel. But notice how he describes these people. Yodia, Syntyche, Clement, other workers in the gospel, whose names are in the book of life. Now, why is that here? And what is the book of life? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. What is the book of life? Uh, I believe that this is a concept that Paul appeals to from the Old Testament Scriptures. In the Old Testament, you can write down these names, Moses and David and Daniel all spoke about a book that God keeps that has the names of the people that he will deliver in it. Okay? Moses, David, and Daniel all said that God keeps a book with people's names in it. And if your name is in the book, you're the person, you're one of the people God will deliver. In the New Testament, Jesus himself in Luke 10.20 and John six times in the book of Revelation speak about a book that contains the names of those who will dwell together with God for all eternity in heaven. They also describe the fact that lost people, people who do not know Jesus as their Savior, that their names are not in the book. Okay, and so this is the background that Paul has with this phrase, book of life. Now, this is the only time that Paul uses it. And I believe that Paul uses it in Philippi because it's going to be something that they're going to understand quite well. And, and one of the reasons that is the case is uh, something that I read in a commentary written by Gordon Fee this week. Gordon Fee has been able to demonstrate that in the city of Philippi, there was a book kept of all of the citizens of the city of Philippi. It was a registry of all of the people who were legitimately citizens of Philippi. Okay, so the book of citizens. <clears throat> Paul's book of life refers to the register of citizens of the heavenly commonwealth. <clears throat> no doubt, this illustration was quite clear to the Philippian believers. It is a book that God has with names in it, and the names are of all genuine believers in Jesus Christ. That is the book of life. Okay. Now, why does Paul write about that here? This is like a loaded theological point that, that weaves Old and New Testament Scripture together. Why does he include it here? Um, my personal opinion here in reading this is that Paul includes this 
to uh, assure these women that he believes that they're genuine, that they're true followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, if I, I go up to someone in here and I say, you know, listen, I've got to confront you regarding some sin in your life, but I want to say, foundationally, I believe that your name is written in the book of life. It's a way of me encouraging them regarding the certainty of their future and the inheritance that they're going to experience. And again, in form of application, this might be another good way for us to confront believers who are struggling with some particular sin. Remind them that they are citizens of heaven and one day we'll all stand before God and there won't be any division like this anymore. So Paul gives them these commands regarding a dispute. Uh, But then in verses 4 through 7, he transitions to other commands concerning our disposition. We'll pick up the speed here a bit, but in verses 4 through 7, I see two categories of exhortations that are related to each other. I keep verses 4 and 5 together, and then I keep verses 6 and 7 together. Christ-centered disposition can be summarized with these commands in two ways. First, Paul tells them, we must be joyful and reasonable. Verses 4 and 5. I think the two commands in verses 4 and 5, the command in verse 4 is rejoice. And the command in verse 5 is let your reasonableness be known. I think those two commands are related to each other. Um, they, they work off of each other because you can, you can even see both of them are connected to in the Lord, in the Lord. Okay? So the first one is a command to be joyful. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. <clears throat> now this command is very important to the Apostle Paul. You can see this. I, I think many of us love this verse, and we've used it as life verses. It's something that we really appreciate, but sometimes in our familiarity, we don't really understand its significance in this passage. Paul uh, shows that it's important by repeating it twice and then telling us that we are to do this always. Now, of course, with this command, Paul simply means that we must have joy in the Lord. I like how one commentator described this joy. He said, joy, unmitigated, untrammeled joy is, or at least should be, the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. Notice what he said next. He says, the wearing of the long face, which so often came to typify some later expressions of Christian piety, is totally foreign to the Pauline version. Paul, the theologian of grace, is equally the theologian of joy. Joy is a very important command here for us to consider. I think as a... New Testament church, we, we need to pray that God would allow our church to be marked by communal or community joy. Listen, we, we cannot be sad-faced when we gather here for worship on Sunday mornings, like we're bidding people to come to a funeral. Okay? This is not a funeral. This is an opportunity to worship the Lord of all creation. We don't want people to remember our stern spirit and our grumpy demeanor. Instead, we must be effervescent. We must be happy. Deeper than that, 
We must be filled with joy in the Lord. Have you ever met a person who was joyful? Seemed to be a characteristic of their personality. They were so gracious in Christ that their whole being, from their spirit internally to their countenance, radiated with joy. I want that to be true of this church. I want us to be a joyful church. Listen, you might have a melancholy spirit with a bad voice, singing voice. That's fine. That's the way God made you. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate that, brother. We do sit in the same section. I can, I can second that testimony uh, this morning. <clears throat> say, That's just not my spirit. I don't have the voice for it. I would just say this. Regardless of your temperament, regardless of your voice, you must find a way to, to rejoice in the Lord when we gather together. And... Let me say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Always. This should be a mark of us. But in verse 5, Paul gives us another command. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So the command is, let our reasonableness be known. Uh, Now, in order to look at this command a little closer, there are two parts to it. There's the subject, or the characteristic, that must be true of us, and then the command associated with it. The subject can be found in the word reasonableness. Okay, at least that's how the ESV translates it. I found this word to be kind of hard to understand and to pinpoint its meaning. So I went through the English translations I found, and here are the translations I found. Commitment or contentment, gentleness, graciousness, generosity, and reasonableness, to name just a few. It's like top five. I think the reason it's hard to really know what this word means is because it's not used very often. If you were to ask me the way I would translate it, or the the best way to translate this idea, I would either use gentleness or sweet reasonableness. The reason I would do that is because in the pastoral epistles, uh, in um, 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, Paul talks about the characteristics of overseers or pastors. And he says there in that text that overseers are to be not violent, but gentle. And what he does there is he basically sets up two characteristics as complete opposites. Okay, one is our word gentle that we're really trying to figure out what it means. The other is A pastor must not be violent. That word means a pastor must never be seen as being a bully or violently aggressive in the way he would treat other people. But the opposite should be true of them. They cannot be a bully, but they must be gentle or sweetly reasonable with other people. So gentleness is the word I would use, or sweet reasonableness. That's the subject. The imperative or the command is, let it be made known to all. Let this reasonableness be made known to everyone. It means not just our friends and family or other people in this assembly. That means even the lost, when they see us, they should think sweet reasonableness. They're not bullies. They're gentle people. 
men and women, we must have joy in the Lord and we must be gentle, gentle people. And the way that being gentle, the way we can be gentle in our disposition is even possible. The way that can be possible is found at the end of verse 5. How can we be gentle even in the midst of the sort of culture in which we find ourselves? Uh, That little phrase, the Lord is at hand, is how? It is possible to connect this little phrase, the Lord is at hand, either to the command to be gentle or not to be anxious, or both, but I see it primarily relating to our gentleness here. In other words, we should be gentle with others because the Lord is near. His nearness might be describing his locality. Like the psalmist would say, I wrote down Psalm 148, the Lord is near to all those who call on him, to all who call on him. Psalm 119, 151, but you are near, O Lord. Paul might say, you know what, you need to be reasonable or gentle with people because the Lord is right beside you. He's right here. And even if you struggle with the difficulty of being gentle in the midst of even wrong treatment or having your rights violated, you can do this because the Lord is right there. He might also be describing nearness in time, temporally. He might be saying something like, the coming of the Lord is near. He can come back at any moment. So... Continue to be gentle with people and let your gentleness be known to all people. And so these these commands, I would just summarize in this way. We must be joyful and we must be gentle as a New Testament church. I think another way of saying that is we must be a grace church. We must be a grace church. Not schismatic not divisive, not cranky, but joyful and gentle people. And we have an excellent opportunity to do that in the the upcoming week with our Christmas concert, Hope Come Down. We will have opportunities to interact with people, uh, hopefully, Lord willing, that's what we're praying, that's what we're trusting to happen, from our community. I don't want them to see sad-faced people who are doing their duty, just coming out of rote tradition and out of the fact that they want to have a good testimony. But they should, be, they should see joyful people. People who have joy in the Lord and gentle people. That leads us to the final group of commands in verses 6 and 7. In my last six minutes here, I'll just kind of work through verses 6 and 7 with you. This is another great passage, but Paul gives two commands here as well. The first command is we must not be anxious. And the second one is basically that we need to offer up quick or quickly offer up requests to God. Look with me at the first part of verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything. The command here is not to be anxious. And it means that we should avoid allowing genuine concerns in our lives to grow to a place to where they distress us. In other words, we we cannot focus on our own concerns and turn our own concerns entirely toward themselves. Perhaps you've been 
anxious this week about something. Have you been anxious about anything this week? The text here says that we cannot do that. Have you been anxious about something relating to a family member or a child or your friends or your job? The command in staccato form is don't do that. Don't be anxious. But then you might ask the question, how, right? (laughs) Okay, I get the command, but how in the world can I possibly not become anxious about the things I'm afraid of or the things that distress me? And I would say read verses 6 and 7. Because that's that's what Paul does. He answers this in the middle of verse 6 and verse 7. How can we obey the command? Verse 6 in the middle, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now to make much sense out of the command of verses 6 and 7 here, we have to see its two parts as well, like we did back in verse 5. The subject, or the characteristic that must be true, or I guess the subject here of the command is the word requests. Requests. In verses 6 and 7 then, Paul gives many words to describe the need for believers to reveal their anxieties to God. We are to make requests. How? Well, by offering up prayers and supplication. Now, the word supplication uh, is a word that's a little bit harder for us to recognize or understand in our culture today. I would just translate it urgent or fervent requests. The word supplication is used in the Gospels of, uh, of an elderly man by the name of Zacharias. He was praying, making urgent requests or fervent requests to the Lord for a child, and God answered and heard his request. It's used by Paul in, of Paul in Romans 10.1 to capture his fervent request for the people of Israel. And so the subject is you need to uh, make requests, urgent requests, by prayers and supplications, and then the command itself is found in verse 6 as well. The command is, is in this form, let it be made known to God, or let them. Let your requests be made known to God. Interestingly, um, as pastors, we talked about this text um, on uh, Thursday of this week as I kind of worked through the, the sermon with them. And uh, we were able to observe together that this is roughly the same idea regarding our gentleness in verse 5. So it's like this. We are to let our gentleness be made known to everyone. And we we are to let our requests be made known to God. Okay, that is the main thought of verses 5 and 6. And as we close, there's one important question that remains unanswered, and that is, have you ever wondered why we need to do this? Make our requests known to God? I sure have. Sometimes it's like, you know, why do I have to make all these requests to God? Because he's like sovereign, and he knows all this. He knows all my anxieties and so on. I want to suggest as we close two possible reasons why you need to make your requests known to God. First, perhaps, we have to make our requests known to God so that 
we can come to a greater understanding of what is actually causing our own anxiety. It may be that Paul challenges the Philippians to give full disclosure on the source of all of their anxieties and make all the requests to God so that they might begin to understand and be able to articulate the things that are causing them distress. Or perhaps, and this is one I like even better because I think it makes much sense out of verse 7, we are to make our requests known to God so that God himself can replace our anxious thoughts with his peace. That's how verse 6 is related to verse 7 in your Bible. Verse 7 expresses the result of the preceding verse. Make your request known to God, then God's peace will guard your hearts. I love one of the commentators this week. His name is Walter Hansen. And he explained how God is related to anxiety himself. He said this, he said, God himself is not beset with anxieties, for he knows the end from the beginning and directs all things in accordance with his own will. One of the things that struck me this week I think I'd never thought about before is that God is never anxious. He's never anxious. Why? He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing ever surprises him. God never struggles with anxiety And he can crush your anxiety as well. Actually, he can replace it with what? Peace. He might not change your circumstances. But men and women, I believe with all my heart, and with the authority of the Scriptures themselves, that he will, he absolutely will give you peace that far surpasses any human explanation or reasoning. And his peace will then stand guard over your feelings and your thoughts. I've been studying this passage for the last three weeks. And since then, I've been engaging in a practice of telling God about my concerns. The concerns that I have and the anxieties that I'm feeling. Sometimes it occurs, many times it occurs for me as I'm laying in bed at the end of the day. But I found in some cases it's needing to occur all throughout the day. So what I, what do I do? I, I name it. Lord, I keep thinking about that service. There's a part of it. Makes me nervous. Anxious. I keep thinking about that problem situation in my life or the threat to my family or my children in a certain area. And so what I've been doing is I've just been going to the Lord and say, Lord, let me, just, let me just name it here. Here are my anxieties. And Lord, would you do something about this? And can I testify, men and women? It's a mysterious thing. Somehow it's, it's even perhaps even unexplainable. God replaces those feelings of anxieties with his peace. Perhaps there's some of you here this morning and you're anxious and you're burdened down by some particular issue, some struggle, something in your family. And you're distracted and distressed by it. My encouragement would be for you to follow this text of Scripture. Make your request known to God by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
and he will give you a peace that far surpasses all human understanding. And he will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's close together with a moment of reflection. I encourage you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I want to give you a moment to respond there at your seat to the text of Scripture. Let me ask you just a few quick questions here. Are you a joyous person? And is this church known for its joy? Perhaps there's some of my brothers and sisters in the Lord in this room this morning who need to confess before God your sinful, sour spirit and demeanor. Are you joyful? Are you gentle? Is there someone with whom you have not been gentle or reasonable this week? Do you need to repent of that? You need to talk with them about your lack of sweet reasonableness. Perhaps your name is not Yodia or Syntyche, but you can think of another believer in this assembly that you cannot share fellowship with in this church. Won't you confess and forsake that? Or perhaps you're anxious. Have you let God know what you're anxious about, if you would do that now, I know that he can replace those anxieties with his peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for this text of Scripture. So many commands. Lord, I'm sure that as we've worked through this text, all of us have been hit in some way or another We are thankful for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that empowers us in these categories of commands and can give us grace so that we might be a joyful assembly and a gentle assembly. Assembly not burdened down with anxieties, but assembly that quickly runs to you offering up requests because we know your peace. Lord, may this be true of us. Would you encourage us Help us this week to live this way. In Jesus' name, amen.